Welcome everyone to the R&M A Conversation on Cinema podcast, where you get different perspectives from two film fanatics separated by Portuguese and British borders, but united by their love for cinema. Now it's time to join Rhys and Manuel as they talk about the films they've recently seen, the films they anticipate and the latest film industry news. Over to you guys. What is going on people? Welcome to the R&M A Conversation on Cinema podcast. Today is going to be a manual heavy episode because I have literally just finished watching One Piece. I am up to date. I've watched all 1085 episodes of One Piece and that is as the episode count shows has taken up a lot of my time over the past couple of months. But back to regular film viewing over the next six weeks as 2023 is coming to an end. But Manu has seen a few films, a few that we've spoken about on the podcast before, well, a few that I've spoken about, and then a few that we haven't discussed at all. So I'm going to question him on these four films, two that I haven't seen, two that I have seen, give you his opinions on them and see if it's worthwhile me checking out the two that I haven't seen. And if it's worthwhile you not checking out, any of the four so first let's start with the the biggest film you could call it which is the Joaquin Phoenix starring Vanessa Kirby co-starring Ridley Scott directed Napoleon what are your thoughts and feelings towards the film obviously we spoke last week about it so you don't need to get too in detail of the script and story and stuff but what's your opinion of the film what did you like what didn't you like etc etc not that much of a good opinion. I didn't quite like it. Uh, from what I remember, I agree with most of what you said. I just think that the things that you didn't like, I really didn't like. And the things that you did like, I didn't. Uh, it, wasn't, it didn't affect me the right way. Uh, the The spontaneous, unexpected moments of comedy that have pleased many, many people, I didn't quite get it. At least not that feeling. Uh, when they, when the lines of dialogue were thrown at me, I laugh. Might have laughed, but every time that I did was in a, oh my god, this was really bad. I mean, yeah, the lines are funny, but I don't know. The whole, it's like you said, the tone was all over the place from the very first second, even though the film is two hours and forty or something like that. Um, yeah. It's it's really all over the place. And the ending when they shows like the customary white text on the black screen kind of thing, where he says that, oh, Napoleon killed these people and that people and that people. It felt like the it felt like the end test end text to a completely different film that was a lot more heavy, dramatic, and I don't know, it it for it was very weird to go through a scene where you have people getting shoved off or something and then just get the guy complaining about the other ones having boats and acting like a child. And yeah, it was just a tonally uneven film. And for me, that really came off as a dispassionate hollow spectacle that Martin Scorsese kind of warned in the his ending for Killers of the Flower Moon. Because in the ending, he talks about how we of the world or the, the current culture, we turn these stories of the past into just spectacles. And we don't really give these stories the the weight that they deserve. 
And I think that there's nothing wrong with Napoleon being a more lighthearted, fun, entertaining film. That's not the problem. It's that it doesn't really... I felt I feel like Ridley Scott didn't really know what film he wanted to make. If he wanted to do like a more serious, dramatic film or something that would be just for fun, and that's why the tonally inconsistency uh, kind of threw me off. The performances are good. Again, like you said, Joaquin Phoenix is good, but Vanessa Kirby is really the standout in my opinion as well. Technically, the battle sequences are really good. Um, I love the charging moments where you have the just the two um, armies colliding or the horses coming, running against um, like a random dude in the field. And you can see that is a lot of extras. It's not just CGI. There are moments where you see, Jesus Christ, how many extras did they get for this film? So battle sequences, I mean, it's really a Scott. It's incredible. It really is. It's an epic, it's a war epic um, at its core as well. But yeah, the tone was too too all over the place for me to actually engage with the story. And uh, I can imagine how a four-hour cut, the rumored four-hour cut, can improve some of the transitions and underdeveloped um, character, character points. But... I don't think it's going to really fix the tone, which was a major issue for me. Um, I know I'm in, kind of in the minority. I feel like most critics have enjoyed this. Um, but um, yeah, I didn't really... I, I guess let's see when it comes out in Apple TV and see if more people enjoy it. But even the audience, I feel like uh, it's been moderately positive. So I'm actually surprised it's not getting even more um, good reception. But I agree more or less with most of what you said. I just got really affected by the tone. Yeah, I haven't seen that much positive opinion of the film, if I'm being perfectly honest, from people that have seen it so far since it came out. And yeah, it's just a, a tonal mess, in, in my opinion. And the more I think about it, the more I kind of dislike the film. I'm a big fan of The Last Jewel. And I actually was a fan of House of Gucci as well. I'm one of the very select few that did really like the film i found it enjoyable is it a mess as well yes but it was much more enjoyable than napoleon was that's for sure and it's two completely different type of stories and different eras i thought the tone just didn't fit the era it was slightly a little bit weird for me but yeah uh, the next film we're going to talk about is one that i have seen and i have glowingly spoken about both on this podcast and on my youtube channel and on a written review, I've spoken about this film quite a lot, especially on Twitter, imploring people to go and check it out. It is Molly Manning Walker's debut film, which she wrote and directed, How to Have Sex. What did you think of the film? Thoughts and feelings towards this one? Really enjoyed it. One of the few films this year where the hype from you and all of our other friends was warranted. Um, yeah, I was. I was... It's curious because I didn't know anything about the film, even though I heard a lot of reactions. But when when titles like this, pretty straightforward, How to Have Sex, I'm like, is this like a direct title? Like, is this really going to be How to Have Sex? Or is this like a clever play on words to mean something else? And, and it is, for a directorial debut, I was surprised with how thematic depth the movie as because it's not an easy subject matter at all. I mean, Molly Manning Walker 
pretty much offers a thought-provoking exploration of consent, society, complicity with rape culture, all in the middle of adolescence struggles. She talks about peer pressure, um, alcohol-driven party mentality and all that. There are so many sensitive subject matters um, right at the foreground. And the thing that I love the most is maybe not as surprisingly as some might think, but it's the bold choice that the director has in not talking about it. Because I think that's the main point people have been arguing, at least from the reviews I've seen. People who didn't like it were frustrated. And I understand the frustration with not having that third act big conversation about the subject and talk about everything that happened and have like a really big dialogue scene or something that put the whole themes into paper, if you, if I can put it like that. Yeah, but I, just want to touch, no, I, don't, I don't, I don't get that critique. Yeah, I'm going to get there. <laughs> That's the whole fucking point of the exactly. film. No, yeah, but it is the point of the film. The, the, the message of, especially of how society is complicit with everything that happens nowadays. And that's the point of the whole thing, that they don't talk about it. You have this very excruciating build-up to something that never happens. Their friends never talking to her, her never really revealing what happened, always having that fear or uncertainty or uh, anxiety. There's so many layers to... I feel like the people, and this might be an unfair... uh, I might be stretching here now, but I feel like the people who are complaining about this, saying that there should have been a conversation and missing the entire point of the film, might be the same people who might say, oh, why did the woman who got raped didn't call for help? Or why did she let her get raped? That It's not how it works. It feels like people are just making something that it's extremely complex into this basic stuff that um, it's just not like that. It's not how the world works. So that's also the thing that I... a very short scene as well. The whole rape scene is a very short scene, which it doesn't... It's, it's, oh, it begins and ends in an instant. And that's, the, again, I just... Yeah, just baffling critique. I just don't feel like people are fully understanding what is going on on screen and the whole reason behind the slow build-up from the get-go. You automatically know that something bad is going to happen. It's pretty apparent. Yeah, that's, that's that's kind of, it's I can't call it an issue, but it's the only thing that kind of um, might not make the film a perfect masterpiece or whatever for me. But uh, it is very predictable from the get go. You know, even though you go as blind as I did, you kind of know where it's going from the very beginning. But it's always very interesting to see how. Especially Mia McKinney, McKinney Bruce, I think it's how we pronounce her surname. She gives a breakthrough performance that reeks of authenticity. Like everything feels authentic in this film, which again, it's one of my main compliments. Nothing feels over dramatized. Everything feels real. There's not a, again, another struggle that I have with understanding some of the complaints that we were talking about. They want this dialogue scene at the end that explodes and and makes the messages that are quite clear even more explicit and but wouldn't that be over dramatizing the whole thing so i think that molly manning walker again for a directorial debut it's impressive how much courage she had in being like no no i'm gonna stay true to my thematic 
message here and I'm not going to, you know, succumb to peer pressure, maybe from studios and have a big third act conversation or anything. I think it, it's a brilliant effort in that regard. Again, it is a bit predictable. I could have, um, I could have got away with less disco sequences. I feel like it's a bit uh, overwhelming at points, especially for someone who's not really fan of that. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's a really, really good movie. The more I think about it, it's contrary to Napoleon. The more I think about Napoleon, the more I dislike it. The more I think about how to have sex, the more I, I, I love it. Um, it's an urgent call to viewers to reflect on their own behaviors or lack thereof. Technically impressive. I didn't talk about the sound mixing, which is haunting and it's brilliant how she mixes the sea waves into the party sequences in the disco. Excellent job there. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's truly impressive for a director. It's one of those directors who I'm now just, you know, you know, when you add the film to your watch list exclusively because you see the director's name, she made that list. And that's one of the highest compliments I can give. Yeah, I thought the authenticity was the highlight for me. And somebody who's been on loads of those holidays, my, myself, um, and even been to, to Malia itself, it was very authentic. And you kind of need... Oh, I you've, don't been, even, you've been there? I've been there, yeah. It was the first oh, place okay. I went to about uh, 18 years ago. Uh, but <laughs> that, that was the first place I ever went to. And it's very authentic. And yeah, so those are the two films I've seen that you've now seen. So now I want to question you on two other films that you've watched this week and see if there's any reasoning for me to put them on my watch list because I do have a watch list now of about 30 films I need to get through before the end of the year. Um, so the first film we're going to talk about is The Nun 2, which I don't know much about. So let me just get it up quickly on the computer in front of me. Did it show us the one? I did watch the first one, yes, but I don't know what the second one even is. Um, okay, who it's is cool. taking? <laughs> okay. Is it direct sequel? Yeah, uh, it's pretty much. I mean, you almost. I mean, there is like one thing that you might need to know about the first one, but you can almost jump into. Yeah, this it's directed by Michael Chavez, who directed The Curse of La Lorna and The Conjuring. The Devil Made Me Do It. So I'm automatically in a negative frame of mind in regards to The Nun 2. So give us a little bit of a rundown about what The Nun 2 is about as a sequel, your thoughts and feelings towards it, and is it one that I should prioritise watching, or is it one I should see if I get the time, or is it one that I should just delete off any kind of watch list in existence? I don't think... You're gonna. I could stay here and compliment the Nun Two all I want. I don't think I'm gonna convince you to watch it. But I mean, the first one is definitely one of the worst in the Conjuring universe, right next to um, Annabelle. Uh, what's the title of the third one? Comes Home or something? And Annabelle One as well. Um, but surprisingly, I don't know if it was because I watched it at home without with like the lowest expectations possible. But I found it surprisingly decent. And what I mean decent is, it's okay. It still has some of the issues that the first one had. Uh, overuses the generic jump scares that often fall flat. Uh, it adds unnecessary complexity to a story. Like It includes like these weird flashbacks 
that are way too messy and character intricacies that it just makes the whole the whole thing a bit messy, especially the third act. But <laughs> surprisingly, it has really good acting. It has improved practical effects, a lot of practical effects, a lot more than I expected. Uh, some honestly impressive imagery. There are some shots there that I was like, damn, is this the man? What the hell is going on? It, there are some shots that I genuinely believe are some of the most beautiful shots I've seen in horror this year. Again, I am sh- as shocked as you might 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 think. Um, contrary to what people might think, I actually think that Michael Chavez isn't the reason why, for example, the Curse of La Llorona was bad. I think he's an okay director. I don't I don't have problems with this direction. Uh, again, the jump scares are still way too often and often fall, fall flat as well. But I think it directed well the suspenseful sequences. Story wise, is the by the numbers. Block as a pure horror blockbuster, which is pretty much what this is, I think it actually makes it kind of represents a positive step forward for the franchise because I found it surprisingly entertaining. Again, I don't know if it was because I watched it far from the date of release, I watched it at home, I didn't have any expectations whatsoever. I heavily disliked the nun. Um but I don't know. I mean this one actually was quite decent. Um but I, I don't really have strong arguments to make it what to make you watch it. Maybe if a nun three comes out we might put on the second one just to kind of get <laughs> the story on our mind. But uh, it was surprisingly decent. Three out of five, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if I wouldn't remember it in a year from now. But um, yeah, if uh, someone is interested, skip it because they hated the first one. Maybe watch this one. Uh, One thing is for sure. Even if you don't like the second one, it's still much better than the first one. But but yeah, it's still a pretty generic horror flick. I just had fun with it. And uh, I quite like Dice Formiga. Formiga as an actress. Um, so yeah, and Storm Reed is also in this, and she's really good. She's having one hell of a year with The Last of Us, this, and Missing, which is the next film I'll talk about. Yeah, let's talk about Missing, which is a a sequel kind of follow up to the film Searching. And yeah, let me know. I haven't seen Searching or <clears throat> Missing, so please let me know why it's seen as a sequel because it doesn't star any of the same people. And how they correlate. And should I check either one out? Yes, you should. Um, have you ever seen the, I guess the official word is screen life storytelling, which is basically the whole film goes through, you see the whole film through computer screens or the computer cameras. It's all through digital cameras, basically. Like phone camera or the Instagram posts. You don't see, that. it's not like there's a camera following the actors. You just have the computer camera or the security camera in the house, stuff like that. Have you ever seen movies like that? Maybe yes, maybe not. I don't know. But Searching, which came out in 2018, um, was ended up in my top 10 of the year. And Missing it might not get there, but it's definitely getting a honorable mention. It's, it's really good. This The amount of extreme detail that goes into these films 
it's ridiculous. The opening sequence to both films, they don't have any dialogue. They don't have anyone talking. It just shows like the mouse pointer going through stuff, clicking on a calendar, adding an event, showing a picture, showing a video or something. And in the span of two, three minutes, you you genuinely get emotional because of how the story unravels. And it's insane how you can create such a... Again, and I'm talking about the two movies here. You can create two extremely complex stories with just camera, like someone doing FaceTime or going with the mouse to open an email or checking news and stuff like that. It's it's really impressive the what they they're able to do. Both movies follow the same premise. Uh, a person from the family is missing. In the first film, the father's daughter is missing, and you just follow the father trying to. Help. Searching. Yeah, exactly. Hence the film Searching, the title Searching. Um, and now it's the other way around. You have the mother goes missing and the daughter is trying to understand what, ha- what happened. And yeah, I mean, both films extremely engaging, extremely captiv- captivating. Both runtimes fly by, pacing is handled beautifully. You never get enough of it. It's generally fascinating how much interesting both movies are. The first one is a few levels above, also because it it was kind of a novelty when it came out. It's not like you see these type of films um, often. It, it, it was also not the first one that ever did it, but it was the first one that I think got an universal critical acclaim, both with the critics and audience. And yeah, since that novelty is no longer here now, you are less surprised. But it's still, it's a narrative technique that became a hallmark in this saga. And it's a detailed oriented manner of creating impressively intricate stories. You get a very immersive experience. With this one, with Missing, you have kind of a somewhat generic mother-daughter emotional core. But it's still efficiently developed. Both movies with superb scores. Um, the whole missing person cases are developed in tense manners, packed with twists after twists. Missing a bit too many. I, I think searching was a bit more grounded and controlled in that regard. Missing goes a bit way too far. Yeah, stretches believability a bit too much. Um, it adds a lot of minor detours that you're kind of like, okay, now you're kind of uh, losing me for a bit here. Uh, searching is a lot more cohesive overall. But yeah, it's one of those things like on one hand, it kind of contributes to the unpredictability levels. But on the other hand, it kind of pushes away viewers who might be more nitpicky about uh, narrative plausibility. Cast delivers strong performances. Again, we were talking about Storm Reed in Danan, and she's also great here. She's the lead in this one. And damn, she's... a Damn good actress. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't really have any ish, major issues with the film. Sometimes this format kind of doesn't uh, present the challenge in key moments where, because you're watching this movie constantly through a computer, camera, and all that, the most emotional moments, you don't have like the usual close ups that you have on actors' faces and all that. So it kind of, uh, that distance doesn't make those scenes um, hit as much as they would. But um, yeah, Missing might not surpass the original, but it 
it's a one hell of a standalone sequel. So the, the, this, I mean, it is a franchise per se. It's searching, run, and uh, missing. Those are the three films, but all three are not connected. They're just uh, they are they're all in the same kind of format. Um, Anish Shaganti and Sebo Anian are kind of the masterminds behind this. Uh, Intel's last one, they weren't directors. They gave the director chairs to a couple of guys, John, uh, Will Merrick and Nick Johnson, uh, director, directorial debuts as well. And they were great. Look, this is a, again, it might not end on my top 10 just because this year has a whole lot of bangers, but it's definitely getting an honorable mention. And I genuinely recommend you to watch these films. What's, uh, I genuinely hope that you do not. Let's make this in January. I'll watch After Sun, and you'll watch uh, Searching. And this way, you—it's my Christmas gift to you. <laughs> yeah, I'll get—I'll get around to watching it. It's just—it hasn't come across my screen. Basically, it hasn't come onto my TV when searching any online over streaming services. But I am going to be watching a lot more over the next coming weeks. So these episodes will be more bolstered up by my own opinions rather than just listening to Manuel's opinion on film. But yeah, one piece is done. I'm happily. Uh, oh, how many episodes again? 1,084. How many freaking days are those? <laughs> I've been watching it basically nonstop. Jesus Christ. But one thing I will say, one thing that slightly I started to get annoyed at by the end is that there's so many parts of it that are just repeated. Like the end of the, the first, because obviously the episodes are split into two halves, a 30 minute episodes split into two halves. They come to about 15, 20 minutes an episode. But the, the episode will end on like a, a scene and then it will begin again on the same scene and it will repeat it. And I feel like they could have cut so much out if you just stop repeating stuff. And there's so many callbacks to previous episodes where you're like, I've been paying attention. I understand why they do it, but like it's it's just repetitive. But uh, story-wise, character-wise, I love it. Brilliant. All right, cool. Well, guys, that is the end of this week's episode. We'll be back next week with another episode with some more films to talk about and some more 2023 catch-ups. Until then, peace out.